Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. <clears throat> if we haven't had the chance to meet, simply said, my name is Stephen. It's good to be back with you guys here. Knock the rust off, see if I can still do this or not. Um, today we are continuing with our Lent series. Um, we've been in this series the last four weeks. This is the fifth week of Lent. And if uh, Lent's an unfamiliar concept to you, if you uh, maybe um, are new to faith or new to New Denver, um, or, or maybe if, like me, you grew up in a church that didn't really celebrate or observe Lent. Lent's the 40 days leading up to the celebration of Easter, and I love it for a lot of different reasons. Um, as I said, it wasn't really part of my life until we started observing it here at New Denver, but one of the things that I've really grown to appreciate most about Lent, um, along with Advent, which is the season that leads up to Christmas, is that Lent and Advent both make space for some of the darker elements of our faith, <clears throat> some of the darker elements of our lives, really. And uh, I, I love that because um, and when I was growing up and in and, and the time before when I didn't really participate or practice Lent regularly, it kind of always felt like Easter was this time where we were skipping over, kind of moving really quickly past the unpleasant parts, the unsavory parts of the Easter story. You know, like we didn't really dwell too much on Jesus and all the complicated difficulties that he entered into into people's lives. We didn't, we didn't really talk too much about him being betrayed by a close friend or, or really think much or dwell too much on him being arrested and beaten brutally before he was hung on a cross and executed. Those were unpleasant things. We wanted to move quickly past those parts of the story so we could get to Easter and celebrate and, and eat ham and dress up nice and, you know, all of the things that we would do around Easter. And those are all good things, but it, it kind of felt like we were skipping over some really important parts of the story. And I think a lot of that is a reflection on our broader culture. Uh, I think sometimes in our culture and society here in America, we can be uncomfortable with difficulty. We can be un, uh, uncomfortable with times of mourning or loss or how we deal with that. I mean, we're really a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of people. Like we, we love stories of overcoming challenges and difficulties. We don't want to think about what it's like to sit in those. I mean, we, we love to think about how things are going to be better, um, not, not dwell on how they're not great now. I mean, if life gives you lemons, you make Lemonade, right? Like that's what we kind of feel like we're supposed to do in those difficult seasons of life. But here's the problem. We can't skip past those experiences when they happen to us, can we? When, when those times or, or seasons of life come where we face tragedy or loss or difficulty, which is beyond our capacity to pull our boot, bootstraps up and just move past um, it's really, really difficult to just put on a happy face and pretend like things are okay. Sometimes the sun doesn't come out tomorrow. Sometimes the clouds don't have silver linings. Sometimes life is hard, it's difficult, it's confusing, and it can feel hopeless. And make no mistake, there is no place to hide from those moments. They come for all of us at some point or another. Tragedy and loss, they're not respecters of how old you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, what your status is or where you live or what your family is like. 
Eventually, times of loss and difficulty and tragedy come for all of us, either for us or for those closest to us. And this is that those, this is those moments, these are those moments where the question arises, what part does our faith have to play in guiding us in these moments? What, what does our faith tell us about these times of loss, these times of difficulty, these times of tragedy? And if we've just skipped past all that the Bible has to say about those moments, if we've just moved past them to get to the happy stuff, we will be unprepared when they come. And we will move past them in that same kind of glad, happy way and miss what I think God has for us in those moments. This is one of the greatest values to me of Lent, is it's a season when we slow down and we focus on Jesus' story, the whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the challenging things that he experienced in his life. We focus on the, the, the resistance that he experienced, the brokenness that he encountered, and we focus on the parts of his story when he was rejected and crucified and died. It's a season that begins on Ash Wednesday where someone puts ashes on your forehead and reminds you, remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's a reminder that even if things are going great now in your life and everything's wonderful, that's great, enjoy that, but also know it won't always be this way. It's a reminder that life is not all rainbows and unicorns. And even if you are experiencing great things now, eventually you're going to run into a season of suffering. And if you're in a season of loss and suffering, it's a reminder that there is hope, that there is hope. And that's what I think Lent can be all about. I love how a Duke Seminary professor and author, Kate Bowler, um, puts it. She she did a... um, a guide for, for Lent. She wrote a great book a few years ago. If you want to read a book and go deeper into this subject, <clears throat> when she went through a diagnosis with cancer, she wrote a wonderful book, and just the title alone will tell you kind of something about her. She says, this is the title of the book. The, the title is, Everything Happens for a Re- Reason and Other Lies That I've Loved. It's this great exploration of how sometimes in these moments people say these things that are just simple half-truths, and they just feel so empty, and she explored a lot of that. She says this, though, in this guide that she wrote for Lent. She says, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says, you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Today I want to look at a story from Jesus' life that I look back to when I have a hard time believing Bowler's words that God is here, we are loved, and it is enough. It's a story that comes from Jesus' life where he sits in the middle of a time of tragedy, and I think we can learn so much from it to take into our own lives and into the lives of the people that we love. So if you want to follow along with us, we're going to be going through this story. It's in the book of John. It's in chapter 11. Um, So if you want to turn to there, you can, or we're going to put some verses on the screen. 
So if you're new to the Bible, the book of John is a really interesting book. It's one of my favorites. It's one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. Um, it's by far the most unique. John was one of Jesus's closest friends. And it's, it's a little bit like he said, you know, hey, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you, you guys did a great job. He wrote after all of the other accounts that we have. It's like he fills in the gaps and adds all these nuance and all of this insight that he brought from being a close personal associate to Jesus. And he tells us this story, which is remarkable and is really tied and, and closely linked to the events of Easter because it happened uh, just a week or 10 days before um, the last week of Jesus's life. And he begins the story in chapter 11 this way. <clears throat> he says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the story begins with a family, Mary and Martha and this brother Lazarus. And, and this family shows up a few other times. The, the event that John refers to about about uh, Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping it with her, her hair. He's going to describe that again in the next chapter. But Luke also tells a story about, this, about these two sisters uh, when they hosted a dinner at one point in Jesus' ministry where they were inviting people to come who were following Jesus to come and have a meal. And this is where famously Martha kind of gets the re reputation of being a busybody. She was running around making dinner and worrying about all that and mad at her sister who wasn't helping, and, and Jesus told her to chill out just a little bit. Um, so these are friends. These are people that are close to Jesus. So much so that when the messenger shows up, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you know that guy, that guy Lazarus, you, you know, Mary and Martha's brother, you know, you've met him a few times. He, they, he doesn't go through all that. The messenger doesn't have to explain to Jesus who Lazarus is. He just simply says, Jesus, the one that you love is sick, and it's serious. These are close friends of Jesus, and they're sending for him because they know if they can just get Jesus there, if they can just get him to come, everything will be okay, because they've seen enough to know Jesus has got these kinds of situations handled. They've seen miracles. They've seen people healed. They've heard the stories about him even bringing people back to life who've, who've died. So they're just desperate to get him there, if they can just get Jesus there everything's going to be okay. But John tells us something really unexpected. Jesus does something unexpected in this moment. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Jesus doesn't leave right away. You would think getting this news that, hey, the one that you love, this person, Lazarus, that you love is really sick and it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. You would think it would be a priority for him to go. And this discussion breaks out among his followers because they're nervous about going to this town, Bethany, which is right near Jerusalem, because the pressure is starting to amp up on Jesus and all of his followers because the religious leaders have become incensed. He's becoming a threat to them. And they don't want to go anywhere near their, the center of their power and authority, Jerusalem, which Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. So this whole discussion breaks out, and Jesus makes it really clear. 
He's not afraid to go to Bethany. He's not afraid to encounter the Jewish leaders. There's something else going on. He's intentionally delaying. He's intentionally not going. Listen to how John recounts it. He says, so then he told them, his followers, plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe but let us go to him. Jesus didn't show up on purpose. He let his friend die. He let his friends, Mary and Martha, go through the loss of their brother. So he finally leaves and he heads to Bethany. John says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. They've already buried him. They've moved on. They're grieving. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So Martha, always first to act, right? Always the busybody, always ready to go. Here's Jesus is coming and runs out to meet him. And she says, the first thing she says to him, almost accusingly, Jesus, if you had been here, things could have been different. If you had been here, If you just showed up, we sent word for you. We thought we would have have enough time. If you had just been here, things would be different. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I want to pause right here because this is where this story begins to intersect with our own. Because I'm guessing many of us in the room have sat in places like this, places like Mary and Martha were in, desperate for Jesus to show up. Desperate for God to intervene and to do something on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of someone that we love. I'm guessing many of us have sat in hospital rooms or doctor's offices where a diagnosis is given and suddenly this numbness comes over your body because you can't really believe what you're hearing and you know that the rest of your life or the life of someone you love is going to be different from that point forward because this diagnosis changes everything. And you just desperately pray. You just call out from the depths of your soul, God, show up. We need you. This is going to take a miracle to change. Maybe you sat by hospital beds when the doctors have said, there's nothing else that we can do. And just prayed and cried out, Jesus, just show up. Just show up and make it different. If you just show up, I know you can make it different. Maybe it's not medical. Maybe you've sat in the anguish of a broken relationship, the disappointment of a failed marriage, and just thought, God, please, I just need it to be different. I need you to make it different. And we know that empty feeling when he doesn't show up. And he doesn't do what we desperately want him to do. We know that feeling, don't we? This is where Martha and Mary are. God, why didn't you show up? Jesus, why, if you had just come. But even now, Martha, with Jesus standing right in front of 
him right in front of her. She still has hope because he's there. He's finally showed up. And she says, I know even now God will give you anything that you ask. And Jesus says to her, what John recounts, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus is telling her that her brother is going to rise again. And Jesus knows what's happening. This is calculated. He knows what is about to happen, what he's about to do. And Martha responds kind of in this way that that often I think we, we think about on days like this when someone is lost and it's this, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. I know he's, he's in a better place. I, I know we'll be together again one day. I know God needed another angel. I know all of these things that people say, they're sort of empty because the reality of death is just still present with her so heavily. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That is the question in these moments. In these moments when they come for us, that is the question that rises in every single one of us. Do I believe these words from Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is life itself, that in him, anyone who believes and is in, connect, in connection with him has an, a life, an abundant life that begins now and extends into eternity. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And then she runs and she goes to get her sister Mary and bring her to Jesus. And Mary comes and her first words are almost the same as her sister's. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the most remarkable thing happens. And don't jump ahead. I'm not talking about what's about to happen. I'm not talking about the thing that Jesus has had planned for at least four days. I'm not talking about, spoiler alert, when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb four days dead and he gets up and walks out alive. I'm not talking about that part of the story. Knowing that that was what was about to happen, knowing that he had this planned, what's remarkable is what Jesus does next. Surrounded by his friends, racked with grief. Surrounded by the pain of loss. What does Jesus do? Does he tell them, don't be sad? Guys, it's going to be okay. Hey, happy faces. I'm here. I'm about to turn it all around. Does he tell them? No, now is not a time to cry. Now is the time to be happy because watch this. 
Now what does Jesus do? John says simply, Jesus wept. Jesus sits down with his friends and he cries. Weeps, not like little tiny tears. He weeps. He's overcome by this emotion. And he sits with his friends who are mourning the loss of their friend, their brother, their family member, and he just weeps. Despite knowing he's about to bring Lazarus back to life, he sits with them and he weeps. Why? Why why this step? Why does he do this in this moment? And this is where I want to stay for the rest of our time because this is the moment where we live. This is the moment where we are. This space between Jesus' promise of life and life eternal and the reality that we live in a world that these kind of things happen every single day. Death and loss and tragedy and pain and suffering are as real for us as they are, as they were for Mary and for Martha and their friends and their family. So was Jesus simply empathizing? Was he simply moved by the experience of loss that he was experiencing? That was part of it. I think part of what we see here in Jesus is the most natural human thing that we can do in these moments is to mourn with those who mourn, to just be present to that grief. In his perfect humanity, Jesus shows us that the most human thing we can do in the face of grief and and loss, especially the loss of death, is to grieve. And grief is much more complex than just being sad because there's more going on in Jesus' emotion than sadness. John tells us that he was deeply moved as he went to the tomb and, and we're told in a few, just a few verses just before he raises Lazarus that he's again deeply moved. And this Greek phrase, deeply moved, has this sense of anger to it. This sense of indignation. Jesus was sad and sitting in the sadness with his friends, but he was also angry. There was this deep sense in Jesus that brought forth these emotions that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's that same sense you have in your gut when you sit in those moments. It's that same sense that you have that, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is wrong. Jesus sat in that too. Jesus sat with his friends in that moment. He feels the pain of sin and the brokenness of the world. And he pours out that sadness and that anger, that sad mad that he had going on that we've all experienced probably at different points in our life. And this is so important because we sit in this moment now, this time between Jesus' promise and its fulfillment. We want to believe that this promise is real. We want to believe that Jesus really does have the power over death, that this story is real, the story of Easter is real, and that we have hope. But when we sit in those moments, sometimes it doesn't feel true, does it? Does it? Sometimes that doesn't feel true when we sit in those moments. But we have this story to come back to and to remember We have a God who sits with us in those moments. Maybe he doesn't show up to take them away or prevent them from happening in our life, but he sits with us 
in those moments. And I can't tell you how much of a difference that can make in your life and in the life of the people that you know and that you love. I have come back to this story so many times through the years. In my own life, in situations sitting with people who are sick or people that are dying, my own father sitting at his bedside praying this prayer for God's mercy, whatever that would look like, sitting with friends from this community who've lost people and have that desperate sense, this is just not the way it's supposed to be and I don't know how I'm going to move on with my life. I'm, I'm going this week to see my mom who two years ago was told by her doctors she has six months to live, two years ago. She has an aortic aneurysm. Any day she, be, she could be gone. And I know I'm going to get that phone call and everything will change in my life. And I come back to this story because it reminds me that God is with me in those moments and that there is hope. And it makes such a difference for other people too. When you have that sense of rootedness and groundedness to believe in this story, to hold to this story, you can be the presence of Jesus for other people as well. As Emily said, I, I worked as a pastor for a long time here at New Denver and before that at a church in Atlanta, and I've had lots of opportunities to sit in hospital rooms and gravesides. J just back in December, um, I do some volunteer work for the Denver Police Department as a chaplain, and I got a call the week of Christmas, three or four days before Christmas, and there was an officer who had passed. I didn't know him. He had cancer. It wasn't a line of duty death, but they said, we're looking for a chaplain. They want a Christian chaplain. The on-call person wasn't available. Can you come? So I just put my uniform on, and I went. And I showed up at this house in Lakewood. I walked in the door, and the coroner hadn't even come yet. Larry, the officer, was still there. They had him covered. His wife and his two sons, two sons the same age as my kids, were sitting there. And they were just in this moment. And what do you say to somebody in that moment? What do you tell them? Everything's going to be okay. God just needed another angel. He's in a better place. You'll see him again someday. Nope. You sit down. You hold their hands. You listen to them talk about their dad, about their husband. You laugh at the stories that are funny. You cry with them when you feel the overwhelming pain of their loss. And when they tell you it feels like God has abandoned us, it feels like God has abandoned this family, you just say, God is weeping with us today because this is not the way it's supposed to be. I had the opportunity to do Larry's funeral two weeks later and I told this story. It's the only story that I have in moments like this that gives hope, hope that God sits with us. He's kind to us in our loss, in times of tragedy, and it gives us hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him will live even though they die. And that, folks, is good news. It's good news Lord, help us to believe it is true. Because if we do, we can become the people who bring that good news to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. 
and can be reminded ourselves when we need to believe it as well. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to talk about these words and to talk about this story and our belief in moments when things are good and everything's okay. But inevitably, the time will come when we will sit in the unbelievable pain and sense of loss. And in those moments, God, I pray that your spirit would speak words of comfort and remind us that you sit with us in the darkest moments of our lives when we feel most alone, most abandoned, when we wonder, where is God? Why didn't he show up? Remind us that you are there with us, weeping in sadness and in anger at the brokenness of the world. And help us to remember that we have hope. Help us to remember that in the end, all will be well. And if it is not well, it is not yet the end. Help us to believe in our doubt and our unbelief and fill us with hope to take into a world that desperately needs it. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.